Good to see you. If it's your first time with us, let me just extend a warm welcome to add that to, to Valerie's welcome. It's really good to see you. My name's Craig. I have the privilege of being the minister here. And hope we're going to be looking at a passage in, in Matthew chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open that. Now the words will appear on the screen. Also, just if you want to keep up to date with what's going on, the best place is Facebook. We, we post pretty much everything that's happening here on Facebook. So if you, aren't on, or if you haven't liked our Facebook page, uh, join the 523 people who have. Um, you're all here this morning, obviously. And uh, you know, it just shows that Facebook friends aren't real friends, people. Um, just being honest, they're not all real friends. Would they come to your funeral? No, they're not real friends. Um, would they lend you money? No, they're not real friends. Um, but they do uh, like our Facebook page, and that really is the best way to, to keep up with what we're doing. We're going to start a little three-week series here called The Cloud. Um, the, today we're going to be thinking about the, the voice that, that, that came from the cloud, that, that, to, to listen to the voice. Next week it will be Follow the Cloud, and the last week will be Can You See the Cloud? So it's just a little three-week series that I've come up with this, this week, uh, and we're going to be doing that over the next three weeks. Uh, when we uh, were married, we, we went on our honeymoon to, uh, we started off in, in, in Vegas, uh, just to do evangelism in the casinos there. Um, <laughs> Becky's quite a compulsive gambler. Uh, and so, oh, she's wild, honestly. Can't keep money. Um, the roulette, the blackjack, I don't even know what those games are that she was playing. But, um, and, but we, uh, we, we decided to drive down to, when you're in Vegas, uh, you've got to go and see the Grand Canyon. Uh, and we, we decided to go to the, the South Rim, which is the longest drive. It took about seven or eight hours drive. We literally nearly got killed about a truck on the way. But we got there. We arrived about five, six in the evening, had some dinner, found out what time sunrise was at the next morning because you want to see the Grand Canyon at sunrise. And so we got up at, at 4.30, uh, uh, roughly, uh, and, and made our way to the, the south rim of the Grand Canyon. There were already quite a crowd there with uh, cameras, mostly Japanese tourists, and just just keeping it real, and, uh, and us. And, and we got there, and the sun came up, and it was absolutely stunning. It was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen, obviously, apart from my new bride. Um, <laughs> bonus points right there. Um, and, uh, and so we, we saw the sunrise. We went back to the hotel a few miles. We planned then to go back to spend the day at the Grand Canyon, and then maybe stay over for another day. And we look so young in that photo, so young and innocent, eh? Honestly, 43 years ago. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we'd planned to, to, to spend the day there, maybe stay over another night and, uh, and spend a couple of days exploring the wonder. Because I had seen the photos, I had watched it on TV, and I thought, this is going to be incredible, we can spend days here and uh, and so we had our breakfast we drove back down to the the canyon and we were admiring the breathtaking beauty the incredible vastness we were snapping away with our cameras after 45 minutes it was still amazing uh, after 90 minutes it was good and uh, we were taking less pictures after an hour and a half we were thinking okay this, this is starting to get a little bit boring um uh, you know something's wrong when you begin to refer to the Grand Canyon as the big hole in the ground. Um, and, and after about two and a half or three hours, we, we looked at each other and we said, 
we're done. And we got back in the car and drove eight hours back to the beautiful sites of Las Vegas. Um, we did go to Cancun as well, by the way. We didn't just stay in Vegas. But we'd seen all we wanted to see. Something that had been so amazing, so awe-inspiring, so stunningly beautiful, became a little bit boring. Became something that we had started to take for granted. And can that happen in so many areas of life? Things that are once amazing, things that are stunning, things that blow us away, things that uh, overwhelm us with their beauty can become a bit boring. That's, that's why marriages sometimes break up. That feeling you had, that passion you had, that fire that was once so, uh, you just you couldn't extinguish it. Over time, two people just become like two strangers, two friends living in the same house. I was talking to a friend this week who... who who, who was saying like, that him and his wife are just struggling. It's not anyone who lives anywhere within remote distance of here. Uh, but, uh, but they just said they're like two friends living in the same house. That there's just, you know, a year ago, it was just a fire. Uh, and now they're just like two friends living in the same house. It can happen in, in so many areas of our, our lives. Things that we were once so excited about. Uh, that's why we become so ungrateful sometimes, because we forget how much we, we have. We begin to take things for granted. That new sofa, remember that new sofa you got a year ago? You saved for it, that new sofa. And when you sat in, you went, oh, this is the best sofa ever. So, and now you just sit in it and you don't think about it. We got our first proper mattress this past year. We got one of those Simba mattresses. You know the ones that come up on Facebook? And, you know the Simba ones? And, and, and it, we, we had only ever had second-hand mattresses, which is really great. Gross when you think about it. Like, you know, like we moved into the curatage in Lurgan and we had a mattress there and we kind of stole it and, and, and took it with us because nobody wanted it. Uh, and so this year we invested in a mattress. And the first night we were like, this is the best mattress ever. And six months later it's just bed. Uh, and, and that happens. And we, 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 that's why we buy more stuff. That's why we need that new house, that new car, that new TV, that new iPhone, because we get bored with what we have. We only have the 7 Plus and now there's the iPhone 10 out. And, and, and so we need the new, we need the latest, we need best. And that can happen with Jesus. That can happen with the gospel. That can happen in our relationship with God. We begin to take God for granted. The, the good news becomes okay news. You know, people say familiarity breeds contempt. I don't believe that's true with God. We would never have contempt. I think familiarity can sometimes breed indifference. That that which we were once so passionate about, we go from loving him with all our hearts to liking him. You know, when you when you first become a Christian, it, it's like being a cloud. I remember becoming a Christian, it's like cloud nine. I remember becoming a Christian 27 years ago, and I just wanted to be at everything. Like, I, I just, I wanted to be at every prayer meeting, every church meeting, you know, every Bible study, every, you know, if they'd let me into the Mother's Union, I'd have went. You know, I just, I wanted to be at, I just wanted to be, I wanted to share my faith with everyone. I wanted to go on every mission trip there was. I, I wanted to go to every uh, Christian event. There was, it was like the sunrise at the Grand Canyon. It was amazing. It was beautiful. But then over time, you get tired, don't you? 
Over time, you've seen it all. You've sang the songs. You've gone to the conferences. You've got the t-shirt. Maybe you've been disappointed by Christians. People who tell me they've been hurt by Christians, that just means that they've been around church for more than two months. Like, honestly, if you're around church for more than two months, somebody's going to hurt you, offend you, or say something that rubs you up the wrong way. Probably me. Um, <laughs> probably. Like, seriously. If, 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 you're, if you're going to leave a church when the pastor offends you, you're probably going to be out of here by Christmas. Um, but, but, you know, that's true, isn't it? Like, like, you get battered, you get hurt along the way, and sometimes that can be worse than other times. But, but, but life happens, and, 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 and the fire starts to fade, and busy next, busyness takes over, and, 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 and the passion starts to wane, and, and that Jesus that you were once so in awe of, sometimes you just start to take him for granted. Church that you loved, you just go, oh, we've got to go again this Sunday. And, and, and sometimes you just start to get into routine. And Jesus moves from being the center of all you are to just being part of your life. He, he goes from being Lord and King of your heart to being someone you turn to only when you are in trouble. And it can happen to all of us. We, we, we've looked at the book of Revelation a little bit this morning. Remember the churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus writes a letter to? The church in Ephesus, he says this to them, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you have had it first. Consider how far you've fallen. In other words, your love used to be up here, but now it's fallen to here. The other church, he says that you're look, that he says to them that they're lukewarm. Their passion for him is lukewarm. It's not hot. It's not cold. And Jesus actually says, I would rather that you were cold towards me. I like hot tea. I even like iced tea. I don't like lukewarm tea. And Jesus says, because your passion for me is lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Like that is, that's tough language. But Jesus would rather we were cold towards him because at least we know where we stand than be lukewarm and wishy-washy and just kind of blah about our faith. And so when that happens, what do we need? When that happens, what do we do? You know what? We need a fresh revelation of Jesus. We need to see Jesus in all his glory and beauty and majesty. We need to see him as he really is. We're going to look at Matthew 17. And here we have uh, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They've been with Jesus for, for three years. And when they first met Jesus, they were so completely in awe. They were so captivated by this rabbi, this Jesus that they were willing, when Jesus came along and said, follow me, they were willing to, to drop everything and follow him. They were passionate in their pursuit. Nothing was more important than Jesus. They've heard him preach and teach. They've seen him cast out demons. At this stage, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him calm, or they've heard him calm a storm with his words. They've seen blind eyes open. They have, they have experienced everything they thought that there was to experience of Jesus. They know Jesus better than any other humans here on earth, especially three of them, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. Just one chapter earlier, we're in Matthew 17. and Matthew 16, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter got it right. Through revelation, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. These men know who Jesus is. At least they think they do. 
Because what we're going to see is that even though they had been with Jesus for a long time, they thought they'd seen everything, they'd only caught a glimmer of who Jesus was. And there was so much more to Jesus than what they had experienced thus far. And when they get a real revelation of Jesus, they see him in all his glory and beauty and majesty and awe. And the only thing they can do is fall on their faces in worship. And my prayer for us is that we would see him as he is. Not as we've been taught he is, but as he actually is. Let's walk verse by verse. There's a lot in this. I, I just... I have so much I want to share, but I know I'm not going to get through it all. So let's just uh, hope that the Holy Spirit just highlights. Uh, Verse 1, after six days. So this is six days. So we've John 6, or or Matthew 16, where Peter says, you're the Christ, okay? And then it says, after this, Jesus began to explain that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter says, no, not a chance. And, And the whole get out. Get thee behind me, Satan. So they've gone from this really high point to this really low point of the disciples just not being able to handle what was about to happen. This is weeks before Jesus' death. Okay, this is this is towards the end of the gospel. And, and the disciples just can't and so it says after six days, and we don't know so there's this six day kind of blank period in the scriptures that we know nothing about. Do you know what I think happened? I think the disciples went off and just were struggling. I think there was this tension between Jesus and the disciples. That, 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 that for six days they were struggling that Jesus was going to suffer and die because this was not in their plan. They had a wonderful plan for Jesus' life and it involved overthrowing the Romans and, and all of that and them sitting at his right and left hand and spilling water on the floor and uh, you won't say it as holy water and uh, and, and 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 so this is six days later, and and it says after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And we we saw this recently, didn't it? Why why just Peter, James, and John? Why not others? Why not the other nine disciples? Could they not have seen and experienced this too? Might they not have felt a bit left out? You see, we all have different levels of relationships, don't we? You have people who are acquaintances. The people you meet in the frozen food aisle in Tesco's and you say hello and you walk on. Then you have people who are a little bit more than that and you chat to them. Weather, cold, little bit how's the family, move on. And then you have friends, people that you keep in contact with. And then you have closer level of friends. And then you have your inner circle, your most intimate friends, the people who know you best, the people you share your heart with. And as you move from casual acquaintances, i.e. Facebook friends, to real close friends, the number gets smaller. The circle gets tighter. And Jesus was exactly the same. In the Gospels, we read about the crowds, the 5,000. We read about the 4,000. We read about the the 120 in the upper room. We read about the 70 that he sent out. He had a big group of uh, acquaintances. He had crowds. He had people around him. And then he had the inner circle of the 12. And then he had an inner, inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And then he had the one called the disciple who Jesus loved, who was 
John. Who's the only one tells us that? John. I think John might have been slightly annoying. I'm just being honest. I think he's one of those people that you're... Like, he, he calls himself the disciple who... None of the other gospel writers call him that. Get to post-resurrection. Peter and John ran to the tomb. What does John's gospel say? And John got there first. I think, you know, Peter had a big mouth and John was just trying to keep up with him. You know, it was a little bit of competition, I, I, I think, there, but that's not anything to do with this word. I, I just, you know, I just love to see that human element of the Bible. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And the others are like, yeah, and we're the other 11 who he loves too. Okay, John, just get over yourself. Um, anyway, he had different relationships with all of them but especially with Peter, James and John. They get to see stuff that nobody else gets to see and experience. They, and, 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 and the people who are closest to you get access to you in a way that other people don't do, don't they? The people who are most intimate, the people who, who you're closest to, they get to access your world, they get to experience you, they get to communicate with you in a way that you won't communicate with the stranger in the car park. And... And in different places in the Gospels, we see Jesus take these three aside. Remember in the story of Jairus we looked at a few weeks, clear the room? He he took Peter, James, and John with him. He only took those three with him. At at Gethsemane, just before he dies, he goes into Gethsemane and he only takes three people with him. Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle. And they were to become the most important leaders in the church, in the early church. Let me say something to you this morning that, that... I, I see here, and, and this, this may sound like heresy, but stay with me for a minute. Any, uh, God doesn't love everyone exactly the same. Now, before you stone me, let me explain. God doesn't love everyone exactly the same. That shocks us because I know for my whole life I've been taught that God loves everyone the same. He doesn't even love everyone equally. Because equally implies that you can measure his love. Yeah? Equally implies that you can... There's some way of going, God loves you a hundred, he loves you a hundred, he loves you a hundred. God's love is immeasurable. It's beyond comprehension. It's beyond understanding. God doesn't love his children equally. He loves you uniquely. I want you to hear this. This is really important. God doesn't love us all equally. He loves us uniquely. There's no competition for your place in God's eyes. No one can replace you. You're special. You're individual. You're unique. And God relates to you as you. If you weren't unique, you would be replaceable. You're not like that cup that you got for your wedding present from Debenhams that when it breaks, you go, I hope they've still got the set so I can go into Debenhams and replace it. It's not like God goes, oh, well, I've lost Valerie, but sure, there's a thousand Valeries out there. I can tell you there's only one Valerie. Uh, She's had a hard time this morning, hasn't she? She's the hecklers over here. But, but you are irreplaceable. You are unique. You are special in God's eyes. He, cannot, he does not relate to you the way he relates to anyone else. Those of you who are parents to more than one child, you hopefully love them all. 
but you relate to them each differently. Don't you? You have a different relationship with them. My, my parents talk to me about stuff that they don't talk to my brother about and vice versa. And That's just because we're very, very different. And they relate to me as Craig and they relate to him as Simon. There's things that you will talk to them that you won't share with the other one. And if Just imagine you have three, three children and one of them were to run away when they were a child. You don't go, well, we have two more, you know. I mean, as Meatloaf said, two out of three ain't bad. I mean, you know, you, you, like... We can do without that one. No, because your kids are individual, they're special and unique and you cannot imagine being without any one of them. And in the same way, let's take this persistent analogy a little bit further. Those of you who had one child, when you had two kids, you didn't go, well, now they get 50% of my love each. You know, four kids, well, they all get 25% of my love because it's like a pie. No, they all get all your love. All get all your love, but in a different, unique way, because they're unique. And as I think it's the same with our relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves all of us enough to die for us. He loves us passionately. He has pursued us. He loves us completely, totally, without limit, without measure. But he has a different relationship with each of us, because each of us are different. Each of us are unique. Each of us are special. There's things that he, and there's ways he will reveal himself to you that he will not reveal himself to me. There's ways that God reveals himself to my wife that I don't get. And there's ways that he speaks to me that she doesn't get. And that's okay. Because we're both, and so that's why we're, we're part of the body. Because as, he, as we bring the whole picture together, we get to see a greater experience of God. I, Augustine said this, I love this quote I, just, I read this just yesterday Augustine said this God loves all of us as if there was only one of us God loves all of us as if there was only one of us in other words God relates to you as if there was only you on the planet I love Christian, I love reading, I love Christian biographies, I love reading about Spurgeon and, and the great saints and Smith Wigglesworth and, and D.L. Moody and Charles Finney and, and all those great guys. And I love them and I emulate them and I want to be as close to Jesus as they were. But you know what? I've got to realize that God will not relate to me as D.L. Moody or Charles Finney. He will relate to me as Craig Cooney. I love reading about Finney. Finney walks through a factory and as he's walking through the presence of God on him is so strong that everybody just falls down and repents and gets saved in the factory. I mean, I would love that. You know, imagine walking through Asda and just revival breaks out. Like, I, I would love that. But it doesn't happen to me because I'm not Charles Finney, I'm Craig Cooney. And Jesus relates to me as Craig Cooney. It's a personal relationship. It's not a copy relationship. It's not a cut and paste relationship. It's a personal relationship with you. And it's not going to look like anyone else's. And we need to get this because, and this has just come to me now, that sometimes some people in this church will be really passionate about an issue. You might be really super passionate about worship or human trafficking or missions or 
It could be anything. And, and you assume, therefore, that everybody else in the church needs to be passionate about what you're passionate about. And you get really peeved off because you are the only one who seems to be passionate about this. You're passionate about uh, Parkmore Estate. And, you're, and nobody else wants to walk around Parkmore and only two other people do. And you're like, you're all a bunch of heathens. You know what? Maybe they're passionate about something else. God relates to you as you. And the thing is this, at times it will seem as God, that God favours other people more than he favours you. If you've grown up with siblings, you'll know what that's like. At some point you've probably felt my parents love them more than they love me. Maybe true, may not be. But well, you, you've probably felt that because they got more attention. They got all the toys. They got all the freedom. They got to do things you did. So you assume, and they probably at some stage felt that your, the, your parents loved you more than them. At times it can feel like God has favorites. You know, you look at others' lives and they just seem to go from blessing to blessing, glory to glory, while you're going through something else from something else. And, and, and it, it, it just feels like the people have these super spiritual experiences and, and you aren't having them. Everybody seems to be getting provision. You know, you're, you're, you've been in debt for three months and, and that person next to you in church who, who doesn't even need the money just seems to get checks through the post every other day. And as best as you can, you're trying to be thankful and you say that's great and inside you're thinking, I want to knock you out. I want to give you the right hand of fellowship. And, 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 and it is hard because it's, it seems like God is like, why are you his favourite? You know, like I even pray more than you do. And, and, and I, you know, and I, I serve more than you do. And even my pagan neighbour seems to be doing better than me. And, at times it feels like God is favourites. You know, like there's people who seem to hear God's voice before breakfast. There's people who, you know, they get up and there's Angel's River dancing in the duvet and, <laughs> you know, and, and you get nothing. I talked about it last week that, that, that I've been in so many meetings where everybody's having these incredible encounters and I'm standing there and not even, I'm like, please, goosebump. Like, I want any, just a hair stand, no, Nothing. And then I've been in other meetings, particularly in, in recent years, where it feels like if there's a prophet in town, we get a prophecy. Like, like I've been in rooms of 500, 1,000 people, and there's been pro- and they, they, they'll back in, I'll be wearing black at the back, and they'll get us to stand up, you know? Some prophets come into town, I do wear a neon shirt. I have to be honest, you know, pick me. Um, especially when you're trying to get guidance for something. But, but it seems like, honestly, for a while, every time a prophet would come anywhere, within like a mile of us we would get an incredible prophetic word and, 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 and so while I may not have had those experiences at other times I've had other experiences that, that others haven't had Jesus loves everyone passionately and completely but he doesn't always treat everyone the same and what I've had to learn is this and this is really important rejoice when his favour is on other people. And that will position you to best receive what he has for you. Rejoice when God is blessing somebody else. Rejoice with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And that positions you to receive what God has for you. Be glad when God touches somebody else's life, even if it seems he's ignoring you. Celebrate God's favor. 
Sometimes you will be in the three that go up the mountain and sometimes you will be on the nine that stay down below. If you're in the nine, rejoice for the three. This is really important because I see so many Christians who get a little bit bitter and a little bit angry at other Christians who seem to experience some things. And that bitterness and that anger is actually preventing them from being in a place to receive what God has for them. Jesus takes these three, Peter, James, and John. And it says it was a high mountain. It says it was a steep mountain. It was actually Mount Hermon. It was the highest mountain in the region. And one more simple point. I know I'm not going to get through. I'm going to probably continue this one actually next week because I'm not going to get through what I want to say. One simple point is this. Sometimes it feels like life is all uphill. We've all had that experience where life feels like it's all uphill. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They might have been picked and the retinine left behind, but this was a climb. This was a big mountain. This was an arduous journey. This was an exhausting walk up a mountain. It feels like life is all uphill. Hard work, you're tired. Your wish, maybe halfway up, Peter, James, and John wish they were in flat ground with the other nine. But it's when life seems uphill, this is what I wanted you to see. It's when life seems all uphill that Jesus could be taking you to a place that he wants to reveal himself to you in a new way. When life seems most difficult, when it seems most arduous, when you feel most weary, maybe that's Jesus is repositioning you away from something else so that he can reveal himself to you in a way that he won't reveal himself to you down on the ground where it's flat and smooth and familiar and easy. We'll, we'll do verse 2 and we'll, we'll, take, we'll, we'll probably finish up shortly after that. Verse 2. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as the light. Can you imagine the four of them, Peter, James, John and Jesus, they're up on the mountain and something begins to happen to Jesus. He begins to change right before their eyes. He begins to glow. I don't know what it was like. I don't know if it was 10 watts, 20 watts, 30 watts, 40. I don't know. He just began to get brighter and brighter. I mean, you actually think about this happening. They're up in this mountain, and Jesus, before their eyes, the one that they have watched for three years, begins to transform, transfigure before them. The, the Greek word is metamorphosis. It's the same word as, as it says in Romans 12, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's that metamorphosis. It's, like there's, it's the same, but it's changing. He glows. He's getting brighter. And look at what it says. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Have you ever been to the Canary Islands and tried to look at the sun somewhere near the equator and tried to look at the sun in the noon, at, at noontime? You can only look for a second. It's so bright. That's something of what is happening here. What's going on is simply Jesus' glory being revealed to them. They're simply getting the curtain pulled back and they're seeing Jesus as he really is. You see, when Jesus came to earth as a man, we call it the incarnation. It literally means he became indwelt in flesh. Carne, chili con carne, meat. Jesus became flesh. He became meat. He became human form. The great God of heaven 
was born and we're going to celebrate that in the coming weeks. As a little baby, he grew up. He had to do all, he had to learn to spell. He had to learn to read. He had to be potty trained. He had to, to, to he had girls giggling as he walked past. He had all, all that stuff that we think Jesus kind of went from a baby to 30. He went through all of that, those awkward teenage years. He went through all of that. He looked like everyone else, but he was not like everyone else. He was so much more. He was God in human flesh. He was the one through whom the universe had been created. He was eternal. He was all-powerful. He was majestic. We read this in Colossians 1, this awesome picture of who Jesus is. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus was not an ordinary man. There's some of those programs on TV, The Secret Millionaire, where you have somebody who's, who's a multi-millionaire and they dress like a normal person and they go into the factory and they work alongside or they go into the charity or into the community and they, they, they don't reveal who they are. They work alongside and they, they get to see what's going on and then at the end they, they decide, I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to give money to this. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just uh, pour out what, my wealth into this project when Jesus came to earth, he was kind of like an undercover God. He was the secret Messiah. He looked like everyone else. He got among the people. Remember the old Graham Kendrick song, From Heaven You Came, Help This Babe? Entered our world, your glory veiled. His glory was hidden. It was covered over with human flesh. But here on this mountain, the glory, for just a snapshot, is unveiled. And they get to see Jesus as he is in all his glory and power and beauty and majesty and supreme authority. They get to see him as he is. And they get to see him as he will be. Because when you get to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1 it says this, his face shone like the sun. In Revelation chapter 21, it says that in heaven there's no need for the sun because the glory of God, the glory of Jesus lights up the place. They get a picture not of Jesus as a little baby in the manger, not of Jesus as a man just covered in flesh. They get to see Jesus as he is. And I want to say to you one day, Jesus is coming back and he is not coming back as a baby in a manger. He is coming back on a white horse as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going to judge in majesty and complete authority and power. And the world might look like a mess today. As we look around the world with all that's going on, we may get upset, we may get disturbed, we may think, where's it going? I want to tell you where it's going. It's all pointing to towards the day that Jesus returns. There's a day when he is coming back and every eye will see him as he rides on the clouds and he rides in in victory and majesty and authority. And they got a glimpse of it on that mountain, but we will see him face to face in his glory, in his power, in his majesty. And we sang it this morning, every king will bow. Kings and kingdoms will bow before him. And if they don't want to bow before him, they will bow before him anyway. 
Because he is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. He is the Judge. He is the Ruler. He is the Creator. He's the Redeemer. And he is coming to judge the earth. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's what Hebrews 1.3 tells us. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And so when we get to that stage where our hearts have got a little bit cold, when our passion has waned, when we think we've seen it all, you know what we need? We don't need probably another conference. We might not need another church service. We need to get on our faces and say, Jesus, let me see you. We need to get in the Word. Let's read. Would we do a series in Revelation at some stage in the new year? Let's do a series in Revelation and let's see him as he is. I I love the book of Revelation. I know it freaks a lot of people out. I, I just, I love it. Once you actually get to understand it, it is so amazing. The imagery there and how it points to what happened then and how it points to what's happening today. And Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain with him, and we don't have time to go into it. Because, but Moses represents the law, the Old Testament law. Moses was the one who went up the mountain, same mountain, brought down the law, the Ten Commandments. Elijah represents the prophets. Elijah is the greatest of all the prophets, called down far from heaven on the mountain. But who's the only one who's shining? Jesus. Amen. And what it's saying is this. You know what? Moses was great, but he's dead. Elijah was great, but he's dead. But there's only one who's alive. There's only one who's shed. And there's only one who represents the glory of God. And it is not Moses. And it is not Elijah. It is Jesus. And he fulfills the law and the prophets. I'm going to jump on here a few slides if you're in... Um, and Actually, let's just get to the end here. Let's finish off. Verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9. Because I I want to go on to something else next week. But this is... When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. They hear the voice of God saying, because Peter wants to build a little... Three little booths. I love Peter. Do you ever, like, just get nervous and just talk? Like, because you don't really know what to say. Like, I do not... You know, do you ever do that? You're just talking? Because you're nervous? and, And... And... and maybe, like, maybe in work you, you've been nervous and you've been in the present and you start talking and your boss gives you that look like. Or maybe you're out for dinner as a husband or, or wife and your partner gives you that look like, don't go there. Or as kids, like, just shut up. Like, stop talking. That's bad. God interrupts Peter and says, shut up. Like, God says, shh, listen. This is my son, listen to him. You listen to Moses. You listen to Elijah. But now you need to listen to my son. Because he is, he is my voice. He is the word. He is the one you should listen to. And so the disciples heard this and they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. See, Jesus always touches us in our fear. Jesus always touches us in that place where we fall down and all before him. That's a blessed place. If you want to be touched by Jesus, if you want a fresh revelation of Jesus, get down and he will come and he'll touch you. Don't be afraid. He will speak courage into you. And when they looked up, this is the bit I want you to see. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They saw no one except Jesus. 
all the things and people that seem so important to us are going to fade away. Moses was so important to these guys. Elijah was so important, but they were gone. And the only one left was Jesus. And there's things that seem so important to us right now. This morning there's things that are so important to you that you're focused on. Jobs, relationships, and they feel like they are everything. Some of you are stressed about them. Health, finances, debt. And the things that that we pour so much energy and so much time and so much stress and so much worry and so much conversation and so much of everything into, you know what it's doing? It's passing away. It's temporary. And actually, ultimately, when all that stuff's gone, he remains. We need to get our perspective right. Because when we get our focus right on him, everything else falls into place. But I've discovered when we get our perspective wrong on him, everything else is out of line. Sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all you need to Jesus is all you have. And when Moses was gone and Elijah was gone, when the law and the prophets were gone, Jesus remained and Jesus still remains 2,000 years later. If your life is focused on people or things or status or career or position or title, when they go, you fall apart. But when your life is focused on Jesus, everything else can be removed. Jesus remains. And he's enough. And so the disciples have this incredible mountaintop experience and they want to stay there. They want to build three little huts. They want to remain there. And Jesus says, no, we're going back down. And you know what happens when they go back down? There's a crazy demon-possessed man waiting for them. There's a mess waiting for them. And as Christians, sometimes we want to stay on the mountaintop. We want to stay in the place of glory. We want to stay in the place where... And, and so they're trying to build... Peter wants to build these little huts because what he's trying to do is memorialize. He wants to, to contain what God's doing. I want to say to you, enjoy the mountaintop but realize that life is not all mountaintops. There's people in the valley who need you. Because I meet so many Christians, particularly in our stream, who run from, who are trying to find mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. While there's a bunch of people waiting in the valley who need your help. And Jesus sometimes calls us to the mountaintop and sometimes Jesus calls us to the valley. But you know what the secret is? It's what the Father said. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. If he calls you to the mountaintop, go to the mountaintop. If he calls you back down the mountain, go back down the mountain. But just listen to him. And as you listen to him, he will lead you to the places and he will lead you to the people where he will reveal himself. And sometimes he will reveal himself in all his glory and majesty and awe on the mountaintop. And sometimes he will reveal himself as he sets somebody free in your neighborhood, in your factory, in your family. 